when was the last time you had a disagreement with somebody? Let me make it even more specific. When was the last time you had a disagreement with somebody in the church? This church or another church? Let me ask an even further question. What did you do with that difference? How did you handle it? What were the steps that you took to deal with it? Or did you not, or, or did you not deal with it? And the wound is still there. The divide is still open. Paul will write that we are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the body, body of Christ. One of the errors that we in the church make is thinking that the unity has got to be created by us. And so we have plans, and we write books, and this is how unity is created. And I, I think that's misguided. It's unity that's blood-bought. So if there's division, it's sin, where we are essentially undoing the work of Jesus. How do you handle division? How do you decide what's worthy of going to the mat for? That's a profound question. And this fights over what's in the center. There are churches and entire denominations that have broken away because they've determined that what they believe is the center and there's no compromise on that. There are churches that believe you must read a certain translation of the Bible and if you don't, you're on the edge, if not over the edge, of orthodoxy. And so churches divide because I, for one, would stand up and say, no, I cannot tell you that the core of the gospel is tied up with a particular translation of the Bible. To give you an example, there are denominations that are denominations because they believe that people should be fully immersed in a tank of water. That's what baptism is. And so we Baptists divide from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who think it's okay to sprinkle somebody and call it baptism. I would also argue that that is not central to the gospel. Somewhere, some Baptists, maybe even in this room right now, are twitching. (laughs) To give you two examples. We often talk about God's providence. I do. I talk about it a lot. Especially as to how over the course of a preaching series like this, God seems to arrange for us to see and to hear his will directly relevant to the issues of our day. It's unsettling, truth be told. As I've already told you, this is Sermon 105 in this series. We're nearing the end of four years in this study. There's no way on God's green earth that I could have arranged for this text to show up at this time. In fact, if I had my way, this text would have been earlier, and it would have been, had it not been, oh, for an international pandemic. But nevertheless, here is Romans 14 and Romans 15, God willing, in the next couple of Sundays, to address a rather hot topic in the body of Christ. It undoes me sometimes when I'm putting my calendar together and I'm watching the headlines and I'm watching the text and I'm watching the headlines and I'm watching the text and I'm thinking, oh boy, can I be sick that Sunday? And God says, no. Romans 14 and 15, which as I said, we'll study this week and next, is yet another example of God divinely arranging all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Okay? So some of you, I'm assuming, I'm operating under the assumption right now that some of you are going to walk out of here grinding your teeth a little bit, maybe even upset with me, and I I hope not, because I'm not trying to upset anybody. I'm really not, and I've prayed up on this, and I've asked the Lord to let me keep my finger on the text and get the message across, and that you work in the hearts and minds of me and you with regard to what our roles may be regarding the division that exists in the church, because we're not immune. 
In these chapters, the Apostle Paul addresses a a Christian community who have differing opinions on the topics of the day, and they are at risk of dividing. They're looking at the exact same circumstance, one from this angle, others from that angle, and things are starting to boil. Well, let's just say at least percolate. I do that perspective things a lot, particularly in in counseling and particularly in couples counseling. I I will use an object in my office. Sometimes it's just my phone. And I'll hold up my phone and I'll, I'll literally physically stand between two people and I'll hold up my phone and I'll ask person A to describe what it is that they're seeing. And then I'll ask person B to describe what it is that they're seeing. They're looking at the exact same object, but they're describing it relative to their perspective. And so they're saying things that are, in, that are close, but also different. And then the light dawns. Like, oh, oh, we're talking about the same thing. We're just coming at it from a different perspective. So how do we get this right? And then all of a sudden, the doors that get blown open with that are often incredible. Same thing, different perspective. How do we get on the same page? How does Paul exhort God's people who differ as he reminds them, please get this, because you're going to hear it this week and next, and he reminds them that division hinders mission. 14, 15, and 16 are the tarmac to taking off for further mission to the unreached people groups of the world for Paul. He's on his way to Spain. But he needs Rome to get to Spain. And he knows, though he hasn't been there yet, he knows, probably from Phoebe and some of her folk, he knows that there's some percolating going on. And he knows, bigger picture, that if he's got a divided Rome, it's going to be very difficult for the gospel to get to Spain. So he says, let's deal with this. Because division hinders mission. And that's exactly true for you and me today. A divided church is not going to care about the unlost across the street to say nothing about the other side of the world. How does Paul exhort God's people who differ? As he reminds them that division hinders mission. There are two things. Chapter 14 divides in half. Five sermons in each half. <laughs> I'm working here, church. I'm working. First, how does Paul exhort them? The first thing he says to them is welcome one another. Romans 14, 1 to 12. Welcome one another. Romans 14, 1 to 12. Romans 14, 13 to 23 is that we are to pursue peace with one another. There's overlap. If it's a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap. First, we are to welcome one another. And then the second half of Romans 14 is that we are to pursue peace with one another. No passivity in the body of Christ. We are to pursue peace. You pursue somebody, you're not walking down the street, whistling, strolling along the way. A pursuit is a dogged fixation on something. And Paul says that ought to be the mindset of the congregation, that you are to pursue peace with one another. Okay? This is Paul's exhortation to people who differ and differ over things that are, quite frankly, going to frustrate him a little bit because it's not the core of the gospel. Let's look at the first thing that he does to exhort them. We have to welcome one another. 14, 1 to 12. Paul's exhortation to welcome those with differing opinions is located, as you know, in the last major section of the book of Romans. The last major section is chapter 12 through 15, 13. That's a major section, a section that's often referred to as the marks of the Christian community. Or, as one writer calls it, It's Christ's college. I love it. And the section starts with that great 12, 1 and 2. I think I preached three sermons on those two verses. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be, trans- do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's how he begins the, if you please, the application section. In view of God's mercies, this, the, these marks of the Christian life are all under the heading of God's mercies. You can't do any of this if you don't know what he has said in Romans 1 to 11. And smack dab in the middle of 13, as you know, he says in 13.8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 10 of Romans 13, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So the marks, the chief mark of the Christian life, the Christian community, is love. Selflessness. A moving toward the other as Christ moved toward us. In Romans 14, Paul now addresses a specific situation in the Roman house churches. There are two groups of people. He's going to call them the weak and the strong. I'll I'll unpack that in just a second for you. Don't immediately take on one good, one bad. That's the challenge here because we hear weak and we hear strong. Like who Who wants to be weak? Well, for one, Paul did because he boasted in his weakness so that the power of God might be made manifest. So let's let that cut the rug underneath us as well. You know, weak or strong? Well, I want to be strong. You know, I want power. I don't want to be a wallflower. I don't want to be a wet noodle. I don't want to boast in my weakness. I'm strong. We're strong. We put ourselves, we pick ourselves up. We get back up again when we fall down, those kinds of things. Listen to the text. Listen to the text. There are two groups. He's describing them as the weak and the strong. We'll talk about that in a second. Looking at the same set of circumstances and arriving at different conclusions. What to do? Husbands and wives, what to do? We're talking about the exact same thing. That's your perspective, that's my perspective. Where do we go from there? If you're anything like my household, you just say, yes, dear, and do what she tells you to do. I learned that from George Jorgensen. Did you just hear him? He just gave me an amen. See, I, I knew, though I'm looking to this side of the room, I know George, I know George would hear that as clear as a bell. And he just gave me the approval that I was looking for right there. Thank you, dear brother. Verse 1 of chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So out of nowhere, Paul drops this language on us. Those who are weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over uh, opinions. What does it mean to be weak in faith? Let me give you one word to hang on that so you don't immediately think of it as something that's negative. It's not the best, but Paul is not going to bring about judgment on them. To be weak in faith, I'll give you one word and I'll unpack it a little bit. To be weak in faith is to be immature. Okay, That'll help you get your head around it. To be weak in faith, here's a little bit more textbooky kind of thing. It is a conscience that's not yet fully mature. It is a way of thinking and living that's not yet fully mature. So in one sense, each and every one of us in this room is weak. Because there's not one of us in this room, past, present, or future, who is fully mature. We all have room to grow. So in some areas, we are all weak. Meaning, we have got a less than fully robust and mature definition of a particular topic, a a, a prototypical circumstance, which means patience is called for. If this was a different kind of church, I would say, look to your left, look to your right, tell your brother, tell your sister, you're a project that you're on the way to being completed. But we ain't that kind of church, so I can't do that. I just saw what you did. I saw you, and I appreciate that. Patience with one another, because every person in the room is not yet complete. Not yet complete. 
It revolutionizes the way you look at your spouse, your children, your friends, other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Like, man, what he just said, what a bonehead. You know, but, but he didn't mean to be a bonehead. He's just on the way. The number of times my wife and others around me have said, you know what, Ronsley, you're a bonehead. She has other words. She doesn't always use that one. You know, and I'll take a step back and like, you know, well, tell me why I'm a bonehead. And then they'll tell me why I'm a bonehead. And like, you're right, I'm a bonehead. And you build on that so you become increasingly mature. It is unnecessarily limiting our freedom in Christ. Please get that down. Weakened faith is to unnecessarily limit your freedom in Christ. I don't mean to keep picking on the examples that I've already used, but to say that I have to be reading a particular English translation of the Bible is limiting freedom in Christ. That's what it means to be weak in faith. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. So he's clearly talking to the strong, right? He's now talking to the strong, but the weak are sitting in the same room and they're hearing this. And so what Paul is saying, putting the impetus on the strong, you're going to get that. Those who are more mature, bear me out with this, right? If you're more mature, you have greater responsibility. If you're more mature, you have greater responsibility to be patient with the immature. If I get after my daughter when she's five for doing dumb stuff, well, duh. I have to say that to faculty, staff, other people in this building regularly. Don't forget She's in the third grade. She, she's doing what a third grade girl does. Oh, yeah. You're not in the third grade. You're the strong one here. Bear with the weak one. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. So he, he's, first verse, he's dropping the gauntlet right away, speaking to the house church, something similar probably to what I'm doing right now, and he's addressing the strong, the more mature, probably some of the older saints in the room, people who have been in Christ for a while, and he's addressing them while the weaker brothers, while the less mature are sitting right next to them, and he's saying to the ones who are strong, to the ones who are more mature, he's saying to them, accept them. Other English translations, instead of the welcome, will say accept. Accept them. Don't judge them because they're young in the faith. Don't judge them because they can't get past certain hurdles yet. Be patient with them. Sister, brother, I don't have any problem doing this, but I know it's going to cause you problems, so you know what? I'm not going to do it. Don't quarrel over opinions. My goodness, let's, let's, let's paint Romans 14.1 on every church building in America right now. Don't quarrel over opinions. What Paul is saying is that there's a clash of opinions. We're not talking about clash of doctrine. We're not talking about whether something's orthodox or whether something's heretical. You've got opinions. I say this to people all the years I've been in ministry. You're entitled to your opinion, but don't make your opinion the law. Don't tell me just because you prefer chocolate ice cream that I'm a heretic because I like strawberry. It's funny, not funny. Because it's in this church. It's in every church. The one around the corner and the one on the other side of the island, and the one on the southern tip and the northern tip. It's in every church. This is my bugaboo. It is the law. And Paul says, wrong. And Paul says, for those of you who are mature, it's on you to come alongside the weak, to accept them, to welcome them, to break bread with them, and to say, let's talk about these things. 
What is it that they're talking about? What are the issues? The issues are legit, but they're adiaphora. They're matters of indifference. The matters of indifference. In other words, your salvation is not rising and falling on what you're going to have for lunch in a half hour. There are two issues that are going on right here. One's diet and one's days. In verses 2 to 4, one person believes he may eat anything. That's the strong person. While the weak person eats only vegetables. So you've got... You've got an issue of covenant loyalty here. There are some in this body who believe that it can't quite peel away from Moses just yet. They can't quite get away from the law of Moses. And so I'm still obeying food laws. Immature. Freedom in Christ says you can eat whatever you want, just not an excess because gluttony is a sin. But you can eat pork, you can eat shellfish, thank God. (laughs) Because in Christ, that law has been fulfilled, so I've got freedom to do that. However, if I have a disciple in the body of Christ who hasn't just come to Christ and has not broken away from some of the rigid, legalistic even ways of their past, don't club them is what Paul's saying. Come alongside of them, accept them, welcome them, work with them along these lines. That's your opinion, that's his opinion. For him, it's the gospel. Don't change it because you're going to make him fall. See, at the end of the day, Paul says, it's not about you. It's about the other. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, you don't walk into somebody else's house and start dictating to the master how he's treating the servant. And Paul says, using that as an analogy, you know the master is God himself, right? And this is one of his servants. You're going to tell this servant of this master how he ought to run his life? Notice now, it's a clash of opinions. It's not a clash of doctrine. It's not a matter of immorality or illegality. It's a clash of opinions. And so I'm going to ask the question a thousand times. What do you do when your opinion is different from somebody else's? One of the questions you have to ask yourself is, is my opinion, is it truly locked in to the centerpiece of the gospel? Now you can begin to ask yourself, because this is where the fun really begins. Begin to ask yourself right now the things that are dividing the churches in America. And you tell me whether or not the gospel's at stake and whether or not I'm wearing a mask or not. To name one hot potato. In Mark 7, 19, Jesus declared that all foods are clean. Brother Moise had Acts chapter 10 open last week. Peter Not on your life am I going to eat anything unclean. God says I'm a vision. Snaps open the the linen on the table and says, eat. Peter says, nuh-uh. And they wrap Peter upside the head. Peter says, "Uh uh-huh. Because God has declared all foods clean, so now Peter can eat pork and not be in violation of the law. But Peter needed to be brought along. Peter went from weak to strong. Nearly, uh, the entire book of Galatians is about this. Don't be divided about what you can eat or not. What about days? 
Look at verses 5 to 7. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to him. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. In other words, when you're saved, you're saved out of your sin from death and into something. You're into a community. You're saved into a community, which means you've got responsibility for everybody sitting in this room. Minimally, not to impose your opinions on somebody that's going to cause particularly a young brother or sister in the Lord to go off the rails. So, back to Moses. I cannot break free from the Sabbath command. Okay? Observe the Sabbath. It's not central to the gospel. You don't have to observe the Sabbath. You don't need to be in church on Sunday at 10.30. You can go to church Wednesday at midnight. Adiaphora. Matters of indifference. There's nowhere in this book, nowhere in this book that tells me I need to be in a building on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Nowhere. It's not central to the gospel. If I'm, if I'm in Hell's Kitchen going to a midnight service on a Wednesday night, and that's where I am, I'm free. I'm free. But you look at me and say, you're not in church on Sunday. If I'm the strong one, I've got to look at that weak one. We need to have a conversation. Because I don't want that weak one to stumble over the idea that I'm not in church on Sunday at 10.30. Adiaphora. Matters of indifference. What, what, and I don't have the time to go too far here, but, but I'll, I'll ask you, because you're smart people, what are the issues today? I've already poked at one. I'm not going to keep poking because I need to keep moving, but I'm going to ask you, what, what are the matters of opinion that are dividing us today? And so, see, here's, here's where the rub begins to get, because I can, I can tell by some of your facial expressions, some of your body language, that your opinions are precious to you. You believe your opinions are the gospel. You want everybody to have your opinion. And that's not an altogether bad thing. But however, what do you do when somebody doesn't have your opinion? And they're brothers in the Lord. And they're sisters in the Lord. And they don't think exactly like you do. What now? What now? And so whole debates exist about what belongs in the center. We can't even agree on what the... And so... Being good Baptists, when in doubt, split. There are entire denominations that exist because we couldn't get to the table and say, this is central. That isn't. Oh, no, 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 that is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. And we're going over here to make sure that the real people have a place to go. Stop and think about let that Let that go in for a while. Absorb that. How do I even arrive at agreement with a brother or sister about what is central? Let me just ask you, and I'll ask you rhetorically, not trying to be inflammatory here, I'm really not. Let me just ask you a very simple question, and hopefully it'll reframe things for you. Do you believe that the wearing of a mask or not the wearing of the mask is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just as an, as an example, there are Christians that are stumbling all over themselves on mainstream media to tell us. I've watched live videos of pastors doing whatever it is that they were doing and telling people they would not allow individuals to come into their church if they wore a mask. I've seen it and heard it with my own eyes. Do not come, he said. Do not come to my church if you are wearing a mask. And then a whole theology as to why you should not be wearing a mask. I ask you to apply this to a scenario like that. I wish what I saw was an exception. It's not. People have left this church 
disregarding Romans chapter 14. What opinions do you hold that you want to make law? I, I love Paul because Paul answers us why, why should the strong welcome or accept the weak? He gives us three pieces. I'm just going to state them to you because I need to get to the second half and finish. In this first half, Paul gives us three reasons why the strong ought to welcome, ought to accept the weak. Here's the first one. It's in verse 3. We, the strong, ought to accept the weak. Why? Because God has accepted him. Verse 3. It's right there in the text. For God has welcomed him. I have no right excluding you when God has included you. Lord, have mercy on my soul if I draw a boundary that excludes where God has never placed it. Second, we ought to welcome the strong, ought to welcome the weak because God has welcomed the weak. Second, verse 8, because we're the Lord's. Verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In other words, the the Lord is the one that the weak and the strong will eventually give an account to. It's not my business to be God's policeman. Though there are a lot of people who think that they are. The weak brother is owned by the Lord. So pray and be an agent in that same Lord's hand to help the brother, the weak brother or sister, to mature. But don't be the God cop. Third, God has welcomed and accepted him. We are the Lord's. Third, verse 10 and following, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Paul just asks it baldly. Why are you judging your brother? Well, why do you despise your brother? You know what he believes, right? You know what she watches, right? You know who he voted for, right? It's a strong word. The body of Christ despising one another. God have mercy. For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And he quotes Isaiah. As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to God. Verse 12, Romans 14. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now watch what happens here. Because those of us who are weak are terrified by Romans 14, 12. Absolutely terrified. It's like a lightning bolt directly into their soul because they think that if I despise somebody in the body of Christ, I'm going to hell. It's not what Romans 14, 12 is about. Romans 14.12 is not about justification by faith. Romans 14.12 is not about whether or not your salvation can be won or lost. Romans 14.12 is about you at the end of the day giving account for everything you've done in the body. In Christ, your salvation is secure. But in order to receive your word, your reward on the last day, you will give an account for what it is that you've done as you stand before the judge of all the universe. Mind you, it's not a nail-biting situation. You're in the presence of the Lord. You're his child. You're in. But there are degrees of reward in heaven. And you've been given good works before the foundations of the earth. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. And the question is going to be, let's see the list of the fruit. Let's see the good works that you've done. And it's not going to be, it's not gonna, you, I've heard some preachers do this. And before everybody on that last day, there'll be a DVD of your life that will play on this big screen for everybody to watch. And all of your innermost secrets will be pl plastered up there for everybody to see. It used to terrify me when I was a boy. Sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more. You're not going to get to heaven and be shamed. Shamed. 
You're standing in line to receive your reward. I don't know exactly how God's going to do it, but if you're pressing your opinion to be law, God's going to find a way to deal with it. Three reasons why we ought to accept the weak. God's welcomed him. We're the Lord's. Each of us will give an account to God on that last day. Nothing's going to escape God. You don't, you don't have to play God now. None of this is lost on God. Let's look at the second half of Romans 14. I want you to be, I want you to be sure that you see and hear what it is that I just showed you. It's, it's our approach to one another in the Christian community. The marks of the Christian community are God-centered. Did you hear it? God has welcomed the weak. We are the Lord's. Each of us must give an account to God. Our community is God-centric. In Romans 14, 13 to 23, Paul doubles down. He pivots with the therefore in verse 13. He essentially repeats himself, but he shows how he is building his exhortation. So in 14, 13, therefore, and now he gives us a negative and a positive. First, the negative. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That one, that one stabbed me. That one stabbed me. I really wanted him just to say, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. But he says, don't do it any longer. In other words, you're doing it. You're doing it. Stop doing it. Just like in 12.2, Stop being conformed to the pattern of this age. Paul right now here in 14, 13 is saying, you're doing it, stop it. You are passing judgment on one another, stop it. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the brother. You see, the essence of the argument, as I've said all along, is freedom from the law. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So there's Paul declaring himself. Paul's one of the strong. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. You know freedom in Christ, but you can't impose that freedom on somebody until they're there. Come on. You can go out for a couple of beers. No, I can't. Yeah, you can. You're free in Christ. You have a couple, just don't get drunk. No, for me to have a couple of beers is a problem. You say to that weak brother, you know what? Let's go for coffee because I don't need the beers either. If your brother is grieved by what you eat or drink, you are no longer walking in love. You want to impose your will. You want your opinion to win the day. You're not loving your brother or sister. That's a hard pill to swallow. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now he switches here and he talks to the weak. Look at verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. There's Paul declaring himself again. You can eat anything you want, Paul says, just not in excess. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's about the other person. The Christian community, NDBC, ought to be a judgment-free zone. So look what he says. So decide. It's an act of the will. This requires you to work at it. You know, it's just a whole lot easier to impose my will. It's just a whole lot easier to express my opinion and expect everybody to believe it. Paul says, decide now, never. Never. Decide Never. So decide now, church, please. Decide. Make a deal with yourself that you will not impose your will on somebody who has a different opinion than you do about things that are not in the middle of the bullseye. 
We're not talking about the deity of Jesus here. We're not talking about the exclusivity of the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. We're not talking about the Trinity. Decide now never to obstruct the path of a family member on their way to Christ-likeness. It's a a powerful term. Paul, Paul says... By act of will, you are picking something up and you are moving it over and you are putting it directly in the path of somebody on their way to Christ-likeness. That's what pressing your opinion does to the weaker brother or sister. And Paul says, decide now you're not going to do that. By the mercies of God, you're not going to do that because you can't do this apart from the mercies of God at work in your heart because right now, if you're anything like me, you can feel your blood boiling a little bit because you believe very passionately about some things that are really impassioned right now in our culture that have zero, zero to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Decide now that you're not going to do that. Positively, in verse 19, he says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Like the Ten Commandments, Paul, just simply, Paul did not simply say, don't do that. He said, don't do that. And then he said, like the Ten Commandments, do this. So I'm not going to do this. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pursue peace. So what am I going to do? I'm going to remove this obstacle. And I'm going to put it way over here. So that this path to Christ-likeness, is free and clear from my weaker brother or sister. Pursue peace. This is not passivity. There's a lot of passivity in my bones and in the churches of Jesus Christ, including this one. I'm saved. Spirit of God is at work in me. I don't really need to work because, you know, we're not about works righteousness. Do a word study of the word work. In the, in, the New Test, in the New Testament and watch what happens. You're saved to work. You don't work to be saved. But you don't get saved and then go into Zen mode. You get saved and then you get to work. And one of the ways you get to work is by pursuing shalom. I asked myself that question this week. Pastor Mark, What have you done this week to pursue shalom in the body of Christ? Preaching is wonderful until it isn't. We're not passive. We pursue. Same word in Philippians 2, 3, I'm sorry, 3, 12, and 14. Paul says, forgetting what is behind and doing what? Pressing on. Same word. Same word. Pursue. I'm pressing on to make sure the roadways are clear for those who are weak in faith to grow to full maturity in Christ-likeness. Whole person welfare, flourishing. What are we doing as a community? What are we doing as individuals to create an environment by which our brothers and sisters can become more like Jesus? That's not a rhetorical question. Moise and I are talking an awful lot now about what the transition is going to look like and about what's going to be going forward. I love some of the things I'm hearing from him as I'm trying to pour some more of my stuff into him as well. But let's ask ourselves as a community that question. What are the shalom steps we need to take in order for a community to thrive and young people in the faith to come deeper into Christ-likeness? Ask yourself, because you're part of the body, It's not just him. It's not just me. It's each and every one of us. For pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 21, Ephesians 2, 21. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's an amazing thing. This is the temple. You're the temple of the living God. Right here. Try to look with condemnation upon your brother or sister when you look at them and you say, like you, you're a stone being fitted together to create this beautiful temple within which God dwells. How could you possibly be in somebody else's face for having a different opinion when you look at a brother or sister like that? Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Okay, the conclusion. Some have suggested, and I'm coming around to this idea, some have suggested that the situation in Romans 14 and 15 is the reason why Paul wrote the book. It's about mission. And it's about his understanding that if I'm going to go to the uttermost regions of all of the earth, namely Spain, you guys have to have your house in order because I'm going to need you as an outpost on my way to Spain. And if you're splitting down the middle, he said, the gospel's going to stall right there. Church, I beg you. I beg you. I'm only a few weeks from being out the door. I beg you. And I'm going to do this until I go out that door. I beg you not to divide so that the mission of God can run through this place and to the outer reaches of Staten Island and to the rest of the world. That's the vision I want to put in front of you. It's that big because God is that great. Paul is well aware that the vision hinders mission. He's on his way to Spain, and he wants the Roman Christians on board. We'll see this next week, God willing. 15, 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Wow. So I leave you with these three quick things. How, in fact, does Paul ground these two exhortations? Welcome one another, pursue peace with one another. Those are the two points. We have to welcome one another, we have to pursue peace with one another. In other words, let me ask it this way. What are the basics? What are the basics for the blessing of obedience? Three things. These are the basics for the blessing. Verse 15 tells us, the first one is that Brotherly love requires it. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What are the basics of the blessing of obedience? The basics of that, the first one is that brotherly love requires it. Verse 17, secondly, the kingdom of God values also require it. For the kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, the outpouring of God's power, his reign over his world, is not about what you're eating and not eating. It's not about what you're drinking and not drinking. It's not about what days you're celebrating or not celebrating. It's about what God, the Holy Ghost, is doing in your life. That's what it's about. Ask yourself, when you feel your face getting flush red and your voice is being raised and you're feeling anger pouring through your veins, ask yourself, what am I doing? Ask yourself, is this central to the gospel? Third, and finally, brotherly love requires it. Kingdom of God values require it. Third, Undoubting faith requires it. Romans 14, 22 to the end. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one, see the blessed? That's where I got this. Blessed. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, Paul's coming at hypocrisy here. If it bothers you, 
If it bothers your conscience, and even though your conscience is not infallible, your conscience is not the Holy Spirit, your conscience can be trained. Indeed, it must be. And so those older saints whose conscience is free in Christ, you're going to be around brothers and sisters whose consciences are still bound, and they can't do certain things because they just can't be released from it. Be patient with them. Because if they act contrary to what they believe God telling them, they're living in sin. And you do not want to be a perpetuator of their sin. You want to hang in there. You want the leaders of the church to come around them because we don't want the weak in faith continuing, we'll talk about this next week, working it the other way because we know that there are a lot of tails wagging a lot of dogs. And the weak in faith who dwell in being weak and legalistic, like to let it be known that that's the way it ought to be. See, there's responsibility for the strong and the weak. The weak has to grow up, become more like Christ. And the strong need to facilitate that growth because neither one dictates to the other in the body of Christ. I'll talk more about that, God willing, next week. Michael Byrd is a favorite author of mine. He's an Australian theologian, and he's written a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans, and he has this to say, and I leave you with this. If God has justified our brothers and sisters, we cannot condemn each other. If God has raised them up, we cannot put each other down. If they belong to the Lord, then we belong to each other. If everyone calls him Lord, then we must call each other brothers and sisters. If God has accepted them, we must accept each other. If they share the same faith, we must share food together. Justification by faith includes fellowship by faith. This is what justification by faith looks like when it sits down at the table of Christian community. Romans chapter 14. Welcome one another as they've been welcomed by Christ and pursue peace and mutual upbuilding with one another because division hinders mission. Father, I thank you for your help in in getting this across in one shot. I know it's been a lot, and I'm again grateful for the patience of your people. Help us, dear God. Help us not just negatively not to be divided, but God, help us to be united to be united for the mission, the mission that you have for this church, for this island, for this nation, for this world, in this little outpost on this corner where Christ dwells has a high and holy calling. I pray that we would not tarnish that high and holy calling with arguments over matters of indifference. Help us truly, as the cliche goes, to keep the main thing the main thing. We ask it in the name of the main thing, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.